0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast. With Christmas creeping closer and closer, how have you been managing your money? Are you someone with foresight who's been saving up the whole year? Or are you desperately dusting off that credit card at the back of the drawer? Debt is terrifying to some and necessary for others. And in this week's podcast, our host, Owen Bennett-Jones, is joined by economist Anatole Koletsky.
2: Debt allows developing nations to live beyond their means.
1: Banker Stephen King.
3: The problem with debt is it's it's high, it's rising, and it's not clear who pays the bill at the end of the day.
1: And anthropologist Laura Baer. Current forms of debt are a trap, and we don't have governments that are going to do anything about it. To discuss the positives and the negatives of debt.
2: There are two issues that I think are worth discussing. One is debt in general, and the other is the specific issue that is actually preoccupying uh, politicians and publics all over the world, I think, more now than the question of international debt, which is still a big issue within Europe, but less so internationally. But that's the question of banking and the role of bankers in creating the financial crisis of 2007-8, which many of us are still paying for. Now, very briefly in this introduction, I wanted to make two points. First of all, Although, of course, the repayment of debt and the collapse of the banking system are are huge problems which have faced advanced societies in the last seven years and developing countries over the last 30 years, debt does create huge problems. We must not forget that it exists, credit exists for two very good reasons, and is actually a democratizing and an equalizing force rather than the opposite. Fundamentally, credit exists to enable people who have the prospects of future income to begin to consume and invest before they have accumulated the savings that would otherwise be required from that future income. Without credit, you would have a much more oligarchic society in which the only people who could afford both to live comfortably and to invest in new ventures that generate additional profits and capital for themselves would be the rich. What credit enables people to do is to advance their future income, bring it forward, lead a better life when they're young, rather than waiting till their 50s or 60s to buy a house, enables them to buy a house in their 20s and 30s. And equally, it allows countries which are poor today but should become richer in the future to bring forward some of that income by turning to international markets, investing in roads, infrastructure, universities, education, and so on. So we must not lose sight of the benefits of debt when we're uh, worrying about the effects. The second point that I wanted to make is, and this is perhaps a rather parochial one from the point of view of Britain in particular, if you live in the country which actually has the clearest global comparative advantage in terms of finance. Finance is the strongest industry in Britain and British finance is the strongest financial sector in the world. You have to think carefully before leading the charge in the destruction of that industry. But even if you believe that financial activity is purely a form of gambling, if you happen to own the casinos or work in the casinos or provide services and goods for the casinos, it may be unwise to be in the forefront of abolishing gambling.
3: Well, first of all, I I do work for a bank um, three days a week, so I'm sorry. Um, And um, secondly, I I think it's, it's worth stressing first of all that there are sort of two extreme versions or approaches towards debt. The first extreme is to say that all debt Um, is very, very bad. And the people who take on debts and can't repay are very naughty people, which is basically the Victorian view of debt. So back in the uh, 19th century, uh, debtors went to the Marshall Sea prison. Uh, They were in terrible trouble as a consequence of borrowing too much and not being able to repay. Uh, The other version of debt is to say that those who borrow borrowed entirely innocently, they were encouraged to borrow uh, too much by other people. And as a consequence, when things go wrong, they should be completely forgiven. Now, both of those uh, views... Uh, must be wrong in the sense that we don't believe in jailing every single borrower who can't repay their debts, uh, and nor do we believe that every single debt uh, should be forgiven in circumstances where things might uh, go wrong in some way or another. And in in that sense, the the problem with debt is, I think, a problem associated with time, that you have a tremendous uncertainty uh, in terms of what happens in the future. Uh, We take on a debt, you're taking a view about what the future will look like, If the future tends to be very, very different from what you had expected, then there's a debate between the creditor and the debtor as to who takes the burden, who takes the responsibility when those things eventually go wrong. If you're lending too much, the interest rates you're offering to lend to people goes down and down and down. And what we know from the last few years, before the Eurozone crisis, is that the interest rates went down and down and down. So it was the generosity of the lenders rather than perhaps the stupidity of the borrowers that led to... Uh, the imbalances that we now see in the Eurozone.
0: Yes, well, I'm not an economist, I'm a social anthropologist. So I'm going to approach this issue from a slightly different direction from Anatole and Stephen. And I'm going to look at what the social effects or social relationships are that are created by current forms of debt. And I'm going to argue that the current forms of debt that exist, which are financialized forms of debt, are a trap. And they're a trap because they're making the rich richer and the poor poorer, and they've created governments who will do nothing about this situation. So let me explain, what do I mean by financialized forms of debt? Well, over the past, since the 1980s, there's been the emergence of new financialized forms of state debt, and personal debt that didn't exist before. So I think Anatole and Stephen are a bit disingenuous in suggesting that we can talk about debt in general. We need to look at these historical changes. So what what did that mean when when financialized state debt emerged? Well, what it meant was that governments could no longer control the raising of their own money. What they used to do was they used to print money or they used to go and have arrangements with banks where they took loans, and that was under the control of political institutions and political rhythms. But since the 1980s, encouraged by the World Bank, the IMF, the Maastricht Treaty, what's happened is a shift in that uh, borrowing form. And instead what governments do now is that they issue sovereign debt bonds through central banks two market maker banks that then go into the financial markets and are then used for primary and secondary derivative trading, producing massive speculation, which means that our governments are now subject to the rhythms of the markets and they can't take their own independent political decisions about what to do on the economy, whether that's redistribution or welfare. If we then turn to personalised, financialized credit, which is, you know, we all have that. We have our mortgages. If we're lucky to have mortgages, we have our credit cards. We have our student loans. That might not seem to be a problem. In fact, um, Anatole was suggesting that this was a democratising force in society. But I don't think it is. I think it's the opposite. Because what's happened is that some of the money that's been pumped into the system through sovereign debt bonds into the financial markets has been then been used to expand the usage of personal debt for all of us since the 1980s. And because we have that debt, we're not protesting about the declining value in real terms of our wages. And that means that there isn't political resistance to either our governments doing nothing about accumulation at the top or the declining value of our our wages. And in fact, we have you know, families in London now using debt fare instead of welfare, 12% of families across the UK turning to credit cards to cover, you know, household expenses, and I'm sure you will have experiences of this as well. So what I'm saying is debt, current forms of debt, are a trap. They're making the rich get richer, the poor poorer, and we don't have governments that are going to do anything about it.
4: Just on this question of debt and growth, can we just restrict it to quite that, quite a tight topic? And Anatole, first of all, you would argue debt is essential to growth, I suspect.
2: Yes, it is essential to growth, but I, I, I'm afraid I can't resist uh, making a comment, which I think is relevant to that on, on, on what Laura just said about whether debt is uh, democratising or not. Debt is economically democratising, but I agree with Laura it is politically moves in the other direction. In fact, in the longer version of my opening remarks, what I would have said is debt is economically democratizing but politically anesthetizing. What debt allows both us as individuals to do, those who borrow and therefore increase our standard of living uh, beyond what we can earn, but also nations, uh, developing nations, it allows them to live beyond their means. Now, living beyond your means is a perfectly legitimate and reasonable thing to do if you expect your means to grow over time. But if you are tempted or anesthetized by debt to imagining that your future means are going to be much greater than they are, then you are locked into the kind of debt trap that Laura is talking about, which has been a big issue for international development over the 80s and 90s. And so it can accelerate growth in the short term if you take on too much debt either as an individual or as a nation, and if you fail to make the political decisions that are needed to promote the genuine improvement of incomes that you're expecting, then actually it can uh, accelerate growth in the short term, but undoubtedly stunt it in the long term, which is exactly what we've seen, say, in Latin America you know, from the 80s onward.
4: So St- Stephen King, I mean, th- this, th- the point we seem to be getting to is that debt can indeed help growth if it's done in the right way.
3: Yes. Um, If you look at the last 30 years, going back to Laura's comment about the 1980s, there's two things that have happened. The first one is that you've seen this massive increase in cross-border holdings of capital, that people in country A can invest in country B and people in country B can invest in country C. That has undoubtedly uh, weakened, if you like, the sovereign strength, the political strength of individual countries because they are much more susceptible to what's happening in financial markets than might have been the case in the past. Secondly. Um, you've seen an incredible reduction in global poverty over the last 30 or 40 years. And by global poverty, I'm referring to countries like China, uh, which has seen growth rates of you know, 8 9%, 10% a year for the last 30 years or so, which is partly associated with the growth of these international capital markets. Uh, to put it very simply, uh, the Chinese tend to save more than they spend. They invest that money into, say, U.S. treasuries, which lowers the interest rates to lower levels than would otherwise be the case. Uh, U.S. companies can then raise funds more cheaply, and funnily enough, those U.S. companies invest a lot in China. This is a kind of uh, circular process that leads to rapidly rising incomes in China. Now, this in turn has led to another uh, difficulty, which is associated with different perspectives on income inequality over the last 30 or 40 years. What is striking over this period of time is that people in the global income distribution, in the roundabout, say, the, the fourth or fifth decile, so in, in sort of the middle incomes of people around the world as a whole. They've seen significant gains in income over the last 30 or 40 years. At the same time, the super-rich have become even more super-rich. The people being left behind, in many cases, are precisely those in the US, in Europe, um, in parts of the Western world, who have found themselves unable uh, to get the kinds of income gains they would have got in the past. So you have this kind of paradox at the global level, a reduction globally in income inequality but an increase locally in income inequality and that is partly associated with the globalization of of capital markets And it also led I think uh, To the increasing support for people like Donald Trump because people look at Trump and say well actually in the US They'll say well he's there to look after American people as opposed to uh, people globally American people the lower middle class and the middle class have lost out over the last 30 or 40 years therefore it is important uh, to look after their interests.
4: Yeah, so, so when you hear this, Laura, these discussions of the impact of debt on not just the economy, but on, on politics as well, I mean, are you reassured that there is at least a useful role for debt in some circumstances?
0: I think that uh, you know, economists like Varoufakis and Stiglitz are still looking to market mechanisms to solve problems of inequality. And I think we now need to start looking beyond market mechanisms. So in a sense, Varoufakis and Stiglitz models are, we just need to make the system of debt and sovereign debt and personal debt more fair. But I don't think, I'm not a believer in the idea that markets or meritocracies can produce equality. I think we need to ask what th- our state should be doing and how our state should be intervening in these processes to, b- to create forms of redistribution. So rather than looking to the markets and, and to look to them to be just fixed a little bit by regulation or whatever else to produce better outcomes, I think we should be looking at what our state is doing and I think our state could do very radical things like for example sati- setting up um, a national wealth fund, our government could could just decide to print money and put that money into a national wealth fund and then spend that money on infrastructure you know give money directly to the poor um and i think sort of mechanisms like that would work much better than looking into come the very quickly please. yeah
3: sure. i mean this is a sort of a, a money tree argument that says if you print money you make people better off which i'm always a, a little bit suspicious about because it sounds just uh, just too easy but there is a way of doing it which is that you could go back to the system we had in the 1950s and 1960s. You simply impose capital controls and exchange controls. You stop money moving across borders. The problem with that is that if you take my point that countries like China have done better precisely because of the opening up of capital markets globally, then you're denying those countries Opportunities that they've had over the last 30 uh, years. Can
0: I, can I just, I want to contest the idea that places like China are doing better. So there may be higher growth rates, and economists would say there are higher growth rates. But are the levels of inequality and exploitation actually reducing? I think if we actually yes. look yes, at we yes, how, well, if we, are. if we look at how,
2: that is not but even something you, worth I'm, discussing. It's just a fact. I mean, the, there are but there I'm, are but 300 million people who have been moved out of abject poverty in China. But
0: What are their working conditions? What kinds of (laughs) outsourced factories are they working
2: in? No, no, no. This is the kind of equal, this is the kind of discussion of equal time which we're having, you know, in Brexit and so on. It is, there is no. Equal time between a truth and a falsehood. It is simply not true that people in China are worse off today than they were in the Cultural Revolution. This,
4: well, this, this, I, I'm this sorry, is not but, you know, open to uh, debate. Uh, that, let, let, let Laura come back on that, we'll, then we'll move it on. Well,
0: well, first yes. of all, are you comparing, you're yes. comparing yes. apples and pears. How can you compare the situation now with the situation in the Cultural Revolution? You should be looking across China a lot and doing c- global comparisons. But, 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 like you okay, that. you can do this.
3: It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay. So subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
4: I just want to move this on to this question very briefly on is repaying debt a moral obligation? Anatole, why don't you open that?
2: Uh, I, I I think there's nothing moral about it at all. I I think it is a purely Uh, economic and political issue. And actually, I I think one has to make a sharp distinction also, I think, between domestic debt, you know, between people within one society and international debt. I actually agree with Laura that international debt has done very, very little good for the world. China, in fact, has been by far the most successful developing economy over the last 30 years, and it has taken on no debt at all. It has, it has prospered entirely on the basis of its own savings. it not so got a lot of internal debt. Yeah, yeah in no, no, no. But so, so yeah. this whole international borrowing thing is irrelevant in the case of China. Now, in the ca- case of domestic debt, as I said in my introduction, I think there is a strong economic imperative for having debt and the reason for repaying debt is that if you have a system in which debt is not repaid well of course then money will not be advanced and therefore it will be impossible for people like you know most of these in the hall including up on the stage to buy a house until they're in their 60s uh which was the way that the world worked actually until until the 1960s even here in england 60% 60% of the population were not homeowners. Uh, so, in order to have a homeowning society,
3: you have to have debt. Going back over the last 100 years, for the industrialized world, there have been three big peaks in debt. The first one after the First World War, the second one in the 1930s, and the third just after the Second World War. Now, the first and third are obvious why they were so high, because wars are costly, you get a lot of debt building up during those periods. Uh, The the, the second one is more associated with the great depression, sudden collapse in income and inability to, to repay debt So the question is of those three occasions. How was debt reduced? What was the mechanism to reduce debt? And there were three basically in the early 20s for those who had a lot of debt They inflated the way out of it most obviously in Germany with the Weimar Republic and massive inflation at that time Debt was destroyed But the consequence of doing that was massive hyperinflation and the destruction of people's savings. Is that a good thing? Probably not the second example in the 1930s um, was uh, default. We had a lot of countries, particularly actually in Latin America, that defaulted, I think actually every single country in Latin America defaulted in the 1930s. And you could arguably say they still haven't recovered uh, in terms of the reputation from that experience in that uh, particular decade. And after the Second World War, something interesting happened. There was very, very rapid economic growth. And because there was rapid economic growth, it was easy to repay the debt uh, fairly straightforwardly. The problem today is that we haven't got the inflation, we haven't got the attitude towards defaulting, we haven't got the rapid economic growth. So we're kind of stuck with these very high levels of debt. And no one wants those high levels of debt, so no one wants to borrow, and the consequence is you end up with continuous economic weakness.
4: So, look, look, Laura Barrett, I just want to uh, pin you down on this, because I mean, you can take Anatol's argument, I'm sure, that if people don't repay debt, then no one's going to make any loans, and yet I suspect your field work in India shows you that repaying debt can be extremely difficult.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, both at the level of new forms of microfinance schemes, which are often touted as a solution for poverty in places like India, and at the level of the repayment of sovereign debt, I've seen the highly negative effects of that for those forms of repayment. Microfinance means that relationships within families are financialized as people try to reclaim debts from people living in their neighborhoods from their kinship networks, and that is a problem. And I. And similarly, at the level of sovereign debt, the repayment of sovereign debt at the center has caused the creation of more and more informalized sector jobs, the eroding of the public sector in India, what little public sector jobs there were. So there are very heavy costs. And I think actually the moral question is not about whether debts should be repaid, the moral question is, where is the accumulation going from, from these debts? It's going to Credit Suisse, it's going to Barclays, it's going to all of these very, very powerful global organizations, and going to a kind of rentier investment class. They're the people benefiting from these forms of accumulation, and that's the moral and the political question that faces us.
2: There is a very, a much better alternative to debt from the point of view of the borrowers, uh, which I think as Laura, uh, Laura was hinting at but didn't quite uh, focus on. The alternative to debt is redistribution of income. It's the government taking wealth, not just borrowing wealth, but taking wealth once and for all from those who are wealthier and giving it to those who are poorer. Now, from a sort of idealistic, egalitarian point of view, that is... A fairer way of running a society and it's certainly a more desirable way of running a society from those who are below the middle of the income distribution but let's not get confused those for genuine redistribution of income to happen on a large enough scale to replace the debt system it's not just taking from the rich it's not just taking from the 1% it is taking from roughly half the people in this room to give to the other half of the people in this room. Because that's what the banking system does. You all have savings accounts, and most of you have mortgages. So you're all lending to each other. If that lending system is broken or substituted by government, that means government raising taxes on all of you, or at least on half of you, to give to the other half. That may seem a juster and more desirable form of social organization, but it is one which our political systems continuously reject. And therefore, in a system where people don't want to give away their income or wealth to those who are poorer than themselves, debt is a second-best but still very serviceable so, substitute. So,
4: Laura, I think, I think what Antoine arguing is the sort of redistribution you'd like is not politically sustainable.
0: I would argue the opposite. I would say that the existing system that we have is not politically sustainable because we have larger and larger amounts of capital accumulating at the top a more and more unequal society even for the middle classes, and growing, growing forms of cruelty, literally kind of cruelty around the world in terms of the way that the poor are treated. Um, and I think that that's actually unsustainable um, and I think that it's just a, it's a, a s- sort of structural system that is that is broken that's just being papered over by that by the credit economy um, you know if you talk to people after the 2008 crash who work in the city one of the big problems they have is the people at the top of the system and the people who hold the most capital not wanting to <coughs> invest it because they're afraid of the risk that face them and I think that as our financial systems and our social systems become more and more <coughs> unstable that is going to continue to grow, that kind of phenomenon, and that means that this model of kind of redistribution of capital through the banking system is no longer going to work, and we're just going to see increasing separations between the rich, the middle class, and the poor. Um, and I think that actually is unsustainable.
3: Stephen King. Well, first of all, I stress again that there's a, a big increase in the middle class globally. If you go back, uh, I think, so 30 or 40 years, you had a population of five billion, of which four billion were desperately poor. You have a population of 7 billion, 8 billion in the world, of which 1 billion are desperately poor. So something has changed in the world economy um, over that period of time. Going back to Anatole's point, though, about debt and income inequality, I think something that is very important um, was overlooked in the period before uh, the global financial crisis. And, And that was that because there was a big rise in income inequality in the US in particular, because people on lower incomes were not seeing the income gains they wanted to see, it was a very neat trick from politicians, from banks, from mortgage companies and so on to effectively make people feel better off even though their incomes were not rising. And it was all done through um, increased supply of mortgages, increased supply of debt. What that basically meant was that up until the financial crisis, consumers in America were able to spend even though their incomes weren't rising particularly quickly. And they could do so because their house price was continuously rising, which allowed them to borrow more. And the more they borrowed, the more their house price continuously rose. It was a kind of a circular story that was ultimately a vicious circle. Now, at the time, most politicians in the US were very keen on this model. It seemed like money for free. Um, The the Senate, the House of Representatives, the administration, all very keen on the idea of an expanding property-owning democracy. And the way it expanded was by encouraging banks, and the banks themselves doing this a bit of themselves, uh, encouraging banks to lend more freely to more and more people in the country. And you started to see the beginnings of a subprime crisis. My point about this is that this was a way of trying to put an elastoplast over a big problem. It wasn't so much that uh, people were really getting better off, but they were able to spend more simply because of higher and higher debts. And one thing I recall talking to someone who was in the housing market back in, say, 2007, I said to him, what happens if US house prices fall? Under those circumstances, does the kind of merry-go-round collapse? Does it all go wrong? And he said to me, he said, look, Stephen, over the last 40 or 50 years, U.S. house prices have never fallen. Why are they going to do so now? And it was a classic story that we saw in Japan at the beginning of the 1990s. We've seen it in the U.K. lots of occasions. So long as you suspend disbelief and think that house prices can't fall, yes, of course you can carry on borrowing more. Once you accept that your asset can fall in value, then your debts become a huge problem. But does
4: that mean that if you've got lots of personal debt, which is not entirely a question of the government creating that situation, it's individuals borrowing lots, you know, students borrowing to pay for their university fees, whatever it is, is that a threat to the economy? You're saying it is? Yes, it is
3: a threat. Because the, the, the problem with this is that the more debt you build up without having any clear expectation of the income you need to generate in the future to be able to repay those debts, the more difficult that debt becomes. So with student loans, for example, One of the problems that we have is that a lot of students are leaving university and not getting the kind of careers they might otherwise have expected, not getting the kinds of income gains they would have expected. Therefore, their ability to repay that debt will go down. And you may get a point over the next 20 years where suddenly there is a crisis whereby students either can't or won't repay, at which point the government has to pick up the bill, which, of course, comes back to future taxpayers. So the problem with debt is it's it's high, it's rising, and it's not clear who pays the bill at the end of the day.
1: So what did you think? Is debt good for society or is it a trap? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times.